Welcome to the sermon podcast of Old Bridge Baptist Church. Our mission at OBBC is to make disciples of Christ who connect with God, others, ministry, and the lost. We pray that the following sermon will encourage you in your walk with Christ today. Visit us on the web anytime at obb.church. I think that if you have a steady diet of what's, uh, what's known today as prosperity theology, if you have a steady diet of listening to that kind of teaching, I think you will come away with a perverted perspective of trials, of hardship, of suffering, of sickness, and loss. I think the pervading message in much of Christianity today is that God never wants you to be sick or to face trials of any kind but always wants you healthy and prosperous and always successful no matter no matter what you do heaven on earth is what seems to be promised to us today well if that's true why would i ever need heaven there if i can have it all here and now The gospel, I think, that's preached in many pulpits in America today is a little salvation and a whole lot of prosperity. It's dangerous. Listen to what men like Joel Osteen have to say, and I'm quoting him. Maybe Alzheimer's disease runs in your family genes, but don't succumb to it. Instead, say every day, my mind is alert. I have clarity of thought. I have a good memory. Every cell in my body is increasing and getting healthier. If you'll rise up in your authority, he says, you can be the one to put a stop to the negative things in your family line. Start boldly declaring... God is restoring health unto me. I am getting better every day and in every way. End of quote. My friends, that is utter nonsense. Absolutely and utterly nonsense. That's false teaching. That is false theology. That that theology that's being taught by him and so many others today, is called positive confession. Positive confession. And it teaches that I can create my own circumstances, whatever I want them to be, with my words, just like God created the universe by his words. It's foolishness. No, trials and and suffering are, are part of life, part of the Christian life that we cannot avoid no matter how positively we speak or how positively we think. There are so many great men and women of God who suffered greatly in their lives, but their lives left a mark in this world. There are some men who were a great blessing in my own personal life 
even though they suffered. And in the midst of their suffering, one of those was James Boyce, for years pastor at uh, 10th Presbyterian Church down in Philadelphia. He made a great impact for Christ through his preaching and through his writing on the authority of Scripture and his, his defense of the inerrancy of Scripture. He left a mark on not only America, but on this world and in my life, my heart as well. He died at 61 from cancer, suffered greatly. While he was dying, he was composing hymns, great hymns of the faith. Dr. Reynolds Showers is another man. He was, uh, he was my favorite Bible teacher. One of the goals that I've had in my own ministry and life for years was I wanted to be able to teach the Bible as good as Rennie Showers taught it. What an excellent, very simple preacher and teacher of the Word of God he was. He died recently at 83, and he suffered for quite a while from Alzheimer's. Then there's the great Charles Spurgeon, the English preacher of the 1800s called the, the Prince of Preachers. Every one of his sermons was transcribed and sent out around the world. All of his sermons are still available to people today. He died at 57. The Prince of Preachers, he was a, a sickly man. For years and years he suffered. But in the midst of that suffering, God used him greatly. I believe we're being sold a bill of goods today that says there's just no place for pain, no place for suffering, no place for any kind of trials in the Christian life. But then what do we do? How do we make sense out of the trials that we all face? And I know you're facing some kind of trial today whether it be in your own personal life or in the life of your family. When it strikes your family, it strikes you as well. Difficulty of facing trials. What do we do to make sense out of all of it? The only way is to be anchored in the truth, the truth of, of Scripture, and not be carried around in circles by, by every wind of teaching and false doctrine that appeals to our flesh and not only to our flesh but to our emotions as well. That's what Job, the prophet Job, he's, he's referred to as a prophet in the New Testament. Job was able to be anchored in the truth. Have you grieved over someone you lost? Many of you have. Job did. He lost all of his children. Uh, by my count, when I look in the book of Job, it's ten. He lost ten children like that in one day. How, how devastating is it to lose one? I remember when our daughter lost her, her young son, Josiah, at the age of nine. How absolutely devastating that was. Well, then think of Job. He was a real man, a real person, like you and like me. 
Then he loses all of his flocks, all of his servants. And if that wasn't enough, his entire body is reduced to a festering mass of sores and boils. He's, he's, been, he's reduced to skin and bones. If anyone knew hardship, it was Job. Every earthly comfort that Job has, and he had a lot, but it's all taken away from him so quickly. And of course, the person he would normally turn to for encouragement, his wife says, hey, just curse God, die. Get it over with. And her response to the same circumstances as her husband faces, and her response to God, completely different from her own husband. Remember, those, those children were hers as well as Job's children. But her response is not the same. Like many who suffer from great trials, she turns away from God. She pulls away from God instead of going towards him, and she rejects him. And then, to make matters worse, Job is inundated with false, false theology and bad counsel from his friends. Why? None of them were anchored in the truth. But Job, fortunately, was. And sometimes um, our suffering, our trials, no matter what they are, have a tendency to overwhelm us, don't they, sometimes? They overwhelm us. And we wonder, God, where are you? God, what's happening to me? Why? The big question, and Job asked it, why? God, what are you doing to me? God, what did I do to deserve this? Or maybe you even ask the question, God, are you punishing me for something I did? I know some of you have asked that question. Well, Job has to sort it all out, just as we do. He spends 42 chapters sorting it out. And finally, at the end, hearing from God, as uh, Dr. Luther mentioned briefly last week, one thing about Job, Job did not have the scriptures as we do. He lived at a time in history when uh, it was before the law, the Mosaic law was given. He had nothing. He lived at the same time, probably, as the patriarch Abraham lived so long, long ago. But we're told that Job belonged to God. Here's a picture of a believer, a true believer in the Old Testament. God calls him early in the book, my servant. Job is my servant. In chapter 1, he's called blameless. Not perfect, not sinless, no. Job knew he was a sinner. That becomes clear as the book develops. But blameless, upright. He's described as a man who fears God. And ultimately, it was Job's right understanding of God, even without the law of God, that enabled him to face 
each and every one of his trials. He knew God. He knew who God was. He knew what God was like. And I want us to look briefly this morning at Job's response to his trials. And perhaps as we see the example that he has set for us that we can learn from him. Number one, Job knew that God was sovereign. And I think that's most important of the three things I want to bring to your attention this morning. Job knew that God was sovereign. He knows that God is ultimately in control of everything. Everything in the universe. Everything on the earth. Even down to his family life. His personal life. What's true of Job... As far as the sovereignty of God is true of you, true of me as well. God is sovereign when it comes to all the events, all the circumstances in your life and my life as well. Everything is under God's authority. Everything in my life is under God's rule. And nothing happens without God's direction or God's permission. God's direction or God's permission. Now, even Satan needed permission to afflict Job. And he afflicted him greatly, severely. But if Job suffered, and he did greatly, it was only because God was allowing him to suffer. There was a reason for it. There was purpose to it. There's always a purpose for trials. We don't see it. But it's always there. It's the sovereignty of God or the providence of God. Another way of putting it is how God directs the course of our life from day to day in the events of life. Remember, God was not a bystander, an innocent bystander in the life of Job. And uh, God is not a helpless bystander when it comes to the events of your life and my life. He's personally involved. Doesn't always seem that way, does it? But he is. He's always personally involved more than we realize. Job acknowledged that God was sovereign in control of the events of his life and the circumstances he found himself in, even when life was sort of spinning out of control. And it was. It was spinning out of control. But more words from another one of the Prosperity theologians. Creflo Dollar, and I quote, Biblical prosperity is the ability to be in control of every circumstance and every situation that occurs in your life. No matter what happens, whether financial, social, physical, marital, spiritual, or emotional, this type of prosperity enables you to maintain control in every situation. No, I am not in control of your life and my life. We realize that. You're not in control of the events of your life. You don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. You didn't anticipate Surgery, sickness, death in the family, loss of someone, and on and on the list goes. We're not in control. We need to see that we're not. Only God is in control. And again, 
this, this whole idea of prosperity theology and being con- in control of everything, that's part of the, the bill of goods that we're being sold today. It says there's no place for pain in the Christian life. That kind of teaching sets us up for disappointment, sets us up for failure. It sets us up to think that when suffering occurs, that somehow God has not kept his promises to me. And we blame God. The prosperity theology says God's love always withholds suffering from us always withholds or keeps trials from us. But it's not true. Just the opposite of true. Scripture shows us how to live with hardship, with loss and trials. See, why do we think that we're meant to sail through the Christian life with no trials? Look at the life of Jesus. He's our greatest example. He faced Trials are far worse than we will ever, ever face. If he faced them, why shouldn't we? Even Jesus said that the the servant is not above his master. And certainly we are not. But Job has the same kind of questions as we do. Why? And all through the book, he's, he's longing to have an audience with God, to speak to God and to hear from God, And finally, he has the opportunity to do that. Job learns that this is clearly a test of Job's faith. See, God knew what the outcome of Job's trials would be. God knew all along, of course. He's omniscient. Satan didn't know what the outcome would be. And Job did not know what the outcome would be. And I don't know what the outcome will be with my trial. I don't know how I will respond to a trial tomorrow. And you don't know how you will respond. God knows, but you don't. And so what happens to you and to me is a test to see how genuine our faith is, how real our faith is. Job's response to the sovereignty of God is a right response. It's seen in chapter 1 of Job. After Job begins to suffer in chapter 1, he's already suffered loss. It says he arose, he tore his robe, and he shaved his head, signs of, of mourning and grief. And he fell to the ground and worshipped. Is the first thing that I do when trial hits me is worship? No. But it was for Job, who falls to the ground and he worships. And he says, naked I came from my mother's womb. Naked shall I return there. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And in all this, Job did not sin nor charge charge God with wrong. See, Job knows something here. He doesn't know about Satan working behind the scenes and the dialogue between Satan and God, but he knows that ultimately God's behind all of this because he knows that God is sovereign. God is in control. He realizes that. 
And he worships knowing that. And then in chapter 2, his wife said to him, Do you still hold fast to your integrity? Curse God and die. But he said to her, You speak as one of the foolish women speaks. Shall we indeed accept adversity from God? Shall we accept good from God? And shall we not accept adversity? In all of this, Job did not sin with his lips. He does not, he cannot find fault with God to any degree whatsoever. And he realizes there is purpose in what God is allowing or bringing into his own personal life. He doesn't know what that purpose is. Just the same as you don't and I don't know. But Job knows that God is sovereign. Do we know that? Do we know that? I hope we do. Secondly, Job knew that God was just. He was just. In all this, Job did not sin nor charge God with wrong. It's a remarkable statement. He knows that God is just. In other words, he knows that what God is doing to him is right and good. It is just. We're so quick to blame God. God, why are you doing this to me? At times we even get angry at God and some turn away just like Job's wife did. Of course, God is never responsible for sin. God is never responsible for the evil in this world. But he lets it happen, doesn't he? It's part of the mystery that that is God. And here in Scripture, he allows Satan to wreak havoc in Job's life. But everything that God does in Job's life is right. And he knows that. Job knows that. Job knew that God was just. Do we recognize the same? Thirdly, Job knew that God was good. He knew that God was good. He worships the Lord. He says, the Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all of his suffering, he sees the hand of God, and he sees that the hand of God is good. Because God is good always. Remember Satan here. Satan thought that, God, that, uh, that Job would curse God. But he doesn't. Instead, he blesses God's name. What does the Apostle Paul say in the New Testament? In everything, give what? Yeah, give thanks. In everything, give thanks. That's what Job somehow is able to do. He doesn't know what God's purpose is. But he knew that God had a certain kind of character. He knows the character of God. He never sees God as anything less than, than good. Later on in chapter 13, he says, Though he slay me, yet will I trust him. Though he kill me, yet will I trust him. Because he knows God is trustworthy. Able to be trusted fully. And even in the New Testament, uh, James in his epistle, he looks back into the Old Testament and he refers to Job 
And he says, Job endured in the midst of suffering because he knew God was compassionate and merciful. Look at all that he faces, and yet he still sees God as one who is compassionate and full of mercy. See, Job knew God. Job was anchored in the truth. You and I need to see our trials as being designed especially for us. In other words, it's personal. Your trial is personal to you. God has designed that trial for you to go through. And don't compare yourself to any other Christian. Don't think about someone else in the sense of, how come he or she doesn't have to suffer like I do? They have it so good. No, don't do that because you don't know what's going on in that person's life. Your trials are God-designed for you. Remember uh, Johnny Erickson Tata, the quadriplegic woman. Here's what she wrote a while ago now. She says, before my paralysis, my hands reached for a lot of wrong things, and my feet took me into some bad places. But after my paralysis, tempting choices were scaled down considerably. My particular affliction is divinely hand-tailored expressly for me. Nobody has to suffer transverse spinal lesion at the fourth and fifth cervical exactly as I did to be conformed to his image. No, our trials are personal, God-designed for us. James in chapter 1 talks about our response to trials, what our response should be. And for some of you, it's a familiar text, but let me read it to you from the, the J.B. Phillips translation. It gives us, a, I think, a clearer picture of what James is talking about. He says, when all kinds of trials and temptations crowd into your lives, my brothers, don't resent them as intruders, but welcome them as friends. Realize that they come to test your faith and to produce in you the quality of endurance. That's what Job learned. That's what I must learn, endurance. But let the process go on until that endurance is fully developed and you will find you have become men of mature character, men of integrity with no weak spots. Now trials always have purpose. But unfortunately, we are short-sighted when it comes to our trials. No matter how painful my trial is, it's always designed by God for my good, for my eternal good. Even though uh, my immediate circumstances or situation might be just plain awful and painful. And we need to see our trials as we need to see them through God's perspective. And that was the text that John read for us. And let me just repeat part of that reading. Because here's a real difficulty for me, at least. I don't know about you. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Paul says, therefore, we do not lose heart. In other words, get in despair, deep discouragement. Even though our outward man, the body, 
the physical is perishing, yet the inward man is being renewed day by day. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory, while we do not look at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. I have a hard time seeing my trials as temporary, and I'm sure you do as well. They seem for some as a lifelong battle, not temporary. But there's a connection, Paul says, between my hardship now, my present trial now, and my future glory with Christ. That second part, my future glory, is based in part on the first part. I don't get the second without having the first. But my problem is I can't see that far ahead. I can't see eternity. I am so focused on the here and now. If you're like me, you see your trial as that big. It is a consuming mountain that we are called on to face sometimes. How does God see it? Momentary light affliction. God, are you kidding? Momentary light affliction? He sees it differently because God's perspective is an eternal perspective. Mine is not. See, but that needs to be my perspective and yours as well in the midst of trials. How do I do that? By spending time with God, by getting closer to Him, by spending time in His Word and being able to see Him somehow in the midst of my trial. It's a process. Well, let me close. Let me ask you, what trial is God taking you through today? I know you have at least one, probably many. Do you see God in control of that hardship? We need to. And remember, there's no such thing as random chance. No, no, no. No such thing as just accidental things. No. There's purpose. Either God's sovereign or he's not. And he is. Charles Spurgeon said, The sovereignty of God is the pillow upon which the child of God rests his head at night, giving perfect peace. That is so good. That is so good. Do you see God as just? That what he's allowing you to go through is right and good. And do you see God as good as Job did? And are you anchored in the truth we need to be? Familiar text in Romans 8, all things, all things, good, bad, positive, negative. All things are working together for good to those that love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. He's talking to those of us who know him, who are believers. All things are working together for good, although we don't see that. My wife is an excellent baker. 
She's an excellent, excellent baker. When she makes a cake, she'll, she'll lay out the ingredients on the counter. And there'll be times when I'll walk into the kitchen and I'll see what she's doing and, you know, I want to taste some of the individual ingredients. But they're rather distasteful in and of themselves. Raw eggs? No. Um, vanilla extract? Baking soda? Baking powder and so on and so on? I'd find each individual ingredient rather distasteful, awful. But something remarkable happens. Uh, something remarkable takes place when she, rixes, she mixes the right amount of each ingredient and bakes it in the oven just for the right amount of time. And the final product comes out and it's so good. Well, those individual trials of life taste bitter to us, awfully bitter, very distasteful. But God has measured them out for you and for me. He's measured them out very carefully, just the right amount, just the right kind of trial that we need. He mixes them together, but ultimately he produces a wonderful, wonderful product. All those things, the circumstances of life that we are going through are for our eternal good. Not just good here, but eternal good, heavenward, the eternal look. Those trials don't seem that they're doing that now, but ultimately, with endurance, we will be strengthened and they will help us to become like Jesus. And that's what God's goal for us is, become like Jesus. Jesus being conformed to his image, but we must be grounded in truth. To know God through his word and to know him as Job knew him. Let's pray. Father, Lord, we know what we should be. We know what our response to the difficult trials of life should be, Lord, but we struggle we fight against it. We fight against you. We blame you. But Lord, help us to have the right perspective today. Give us grace to do that. And help each of us as your people, Lord, to be anchored in truth by your grace. In Christ's name, amen.